gracious. Uh, Y'all stop that. Uh, I think he just took out like three pages of my sermon here. I didn't know he was going to be doing that. How are you guys doing this morning? Doing all right? I'm very thankful to be here this morning to be able to speak to you. Also, our online family, welcome to Church Online. We're so thankful. Can we give it up for our online family as well today? We love you. Thank you for being here. Uh, You guys do need to know, as he said, this is my first time getting to speak to you all. And I don't know if you happen to know this, we do have a team that serves here, and they're our security team, and each and every person that comes up here and speaks actually has a call sign. And I need to preface this now before we go in, because I I just realized that I had to do this today. But I've been vying for the call sign Maverick for a long, long time. Right? Every other speaker has got these kind of dainty call signs, and I wanted one that stood out. So unfortunately today, what you're going to be subject to is I have to quote Top Gun at least twice during the sermon. Don't think of me as less spiritual, okay? I'm just trying to love my security team and to get this call sign. Sound good? So just track with me as we go. But, but like Colin said, uh, I've, I've, been, I've been in ministry for about 11 years, and uh, I wanted to let you know a little secret. Are you guys okay with a little secret real quick? If you ever get the chance to speak in place of a lead pastor, okay? If you ever get to step up into their pulpit per se, I would always suggest that you do this. You honor them, okay? Here we believe in honor and known as one of our values that we honor up, down, and all around, and it's what we do, and it's who we are, and you need to know that your lead pastor, I've known him for 13 years. We were acquaintances for really nine of it, but over the last four or five years-ish, we've become much closer, And the man that Colin Outerbridge is inspires me. In fact, we moved our family from Texas to come join because we know who Colin is. And we've seen our fair share of senior pastors. But you guys need to know, our lead pastor is special. There's something about him that when he conveys the vision of being a multicultural, diverse, multi-generational, diverse church that's based in neighborhoods, he means it. Why? Because he loves you and he loves your families. And when I saw that, I was like, I have to be a part of that. And so, honestly, in in many ways, I I get to be one of the many gooses to his maverick. And uh, that's one. Hey, can we show some love to our lead pastor, Colin Outerbridge? We love you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak here today. So we're in the middle of a series called Mirage. You guys say Mirage? Mirage. Say Mirage. I just want to make sure you're with me. Good job. A mirage, we've been quoting it as this, is an optical illusion that convincingly portrays something that is not real. It is an optical illusion to convince us of something that is truly not there. It is not there. And in this series, we're talking about how to win the war of temptation. And much like a mirage, temptation may promise to satisfy us, but ultimately, temptation is an illusion portrayed by the enemy to convince us of something that is truly not there. And in this, we learn a couple things in Luke chapter 4, which we've been going through recently. So if you have your Bibles or it's on your phone, make sure you get that out. We're going to be in Luke chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, exploring the temptations that Jesus encountered. So in Luke chapter 4, to have some backstory, what you need to know is this is right after Jesus' baptism. This is a crucial moment where he is led by the Holy Spirit into the desert, 40 days, where Satan encounters him and tempts him multiple times over. And to witness how Jesus 
resist temptation is the whole point of this documentation by Luke in chapter 4. Now, what we do need to know about is in Hebrews 4, it's a good understanding to have that we have a God who is able to empathize. Y'all say empathize. He's able to empathize with us because he has been tempted in every single way that we have been tempted, yet what? Did not sin. So we know going into Luke 4 that Jesus did not sin. So if it is a promise that we will encounter what Jesus encountered, and this world would be against us, why would we not look at Luke 4 and see how Jesus combated temptation? Are you guys with me? How would Jesus combat temptation? And if you remember last week, if you weren't here, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to recap a little bit. But when it comes to temptation, we are hit. When Satan hits us, you guys say hit. I'm just making sure you're awake this morning. Say hit. When we're hit, normally that's when uh, Satan comes after us, right? We're hungry. We're isolated. We're tired. That's oftentimes when we're encountering this deep temptation to take us away from God into what the enemy may have us go towards. And there's a couple different places that the enemy likes to go after. Number one, he likes to go after our comfort. Likes to go after our idea of power. Likes to go after our idea of control, that perhaps maybe I can control my own life and the own outcomes. Maybe it's, it's my sense of approval that I need to look to other people to approve my identity. And oftentimes temptation, as we accounted for last week is much less assuming than you would think. You would think it's a full-on frontal assault. No, 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 no. It's oftentimes more of a whisper. It's more of a nudging or a leading. It's not necessarily the water main breaking in your kitchen and flooding everything. It's actually the slow drip behind the drywall. It's oftentimes not a shout. It's a whisper that convinces us to move a certain way, wondering why we're moving further and further away from God. Temptation is a whisper. And we say it this way, that every innocent invitation has an insidious plot. Every innocent, seemingly innocent invitation towards temptation is an insidious plot against us the goal of the enemy to take us further and further and further from the will of god because if the enemy cannot take your salvation he can keep you distracted from mirage to mirage to mirage over and over and over so let's go ahead and turn in our bibles luke chapter 4 if you're already there and i'm going to actually invite us to do something a little old school would you stand as we read god's word together this morning Again, starting in Luke chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. And it says this, And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Let us pray. Jesus, today we come back again to you. Like the song we sang, that there is nothing else we want but to come back to the beginning of when you called us. And today, God, you would reform our identity. You would reform the way we look at you. And we would look at the way that you responded to temptation that we face every single day in hopes that we may become more like you each and every step 
of the way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. may be seated. I have a question uh, for you guys as we get into the talk today. Anyone familiar with Dr. Gary Chapman? Raise your hands. Dr. Gary Chapman. Got a couple people. Awesome. More than I thought. Now, I will say this. I'm going to probably see more hands after this. Anyone heard of the love languages? Yeah, there we go. Okay, cool. So Dr. Gary Chapman, over years of being a licensed mental health practitioner and pastor, he developed these five love languages that maybe you heard of in a marriage seminar. I really think they're great tools to use in interpersonal relationship anyway. But he developed these tools in hopes to make marriages better, to make our relationships better. And so I kind of wanted to do a little survey. A couple of these gifts, for example, uh, number one is gifts. You feel loved when you receive gifts. Where are my gifts people at? You lo- okay, a couple of you, like three or four of you. So like when you're given something, you're like, yes, I feel so loved, right? That's you. Uh, number two, we have acts of service. Any acts of service? Like if someone just serves you well. Okay, so this is my wife. Okay, this is, this is my wife. When we had babies, right, it went from her love language being physical touch to acts of service. When I would clean those bottles, oh my gosh, like she was, I cleaned the kitchen, I'd vacuum, she was like, yes. John, I know you love me, right? Acts of service. Physical touch, where my, my huggers at, high fives, fist bumps, right? When I say, hey, why don't you turn and find someone you don't know? You're like, yes, yes. And the introverts are like, please don't touch me. Get away from me, right? Like, you're, you're the opposite. You're, you're the person who's high fiving because that's how you feel loved. Quality time, people, yes? Quality time, you love sitting down, watching a movie with the people you love. Amen, exactly. Quality time matters. Being together matters. Family people, you love this. Now, here's where I land, and maybe this is some of you guys, too. Where are my words of affirmation, people? Like, yes, okay, there's all the hands, right? Who doesn't love getting encouraged, right? Like, at the end of the day, I love encouragement. I love it. Uh, you know, it's obvious my hairline's receding, right? But when my wife notices, I've been in the gym for the past two months, right, Kevin? Like, I've been working, and she's like, that dad bod's kind of disappearing. I could take on the day. Like, she's like, you're looking good. Like, thank you. Like, I'm, I've been working hard on this. Thank you very much. I can take on the day because words of affirmation are great. I would say encouragement is actually biblical. First uh, Thessalonians. It says you should encourage one another to build one another up. That's great. We should. We should encourage each other. And I love being encouraged. But um, how many of y'all know, and I say y'all because I preached in Texas for too long, so don't judge me, that when God assigns something to us that's good, we can oftentimes make it bad. Yeah, we can take it the wrong direction. Because encouragement, if we're standing here and this is encouragement, uh, it's actually a humbling thing to receive encouragement. Would you agree? It's, if, if you're able to receive encouragement well, uh, you take it as though you know that you're probably not as bad as your critics say you are, but you're not as good as your fans say you are. So when someone says it, you usually turn it towards God and you say, thank you, Jesus, for that encouragement. You take it. That's good. Encouragement is a holy thing. But then sometimes we can get over to this place, which is really more of just an acknowledgement. Like someone just kind of acknowledges something you do, yet you feel like, I should have, I didn't feel the same thing that I felt in encouragement and acknowledgement. Something was missing. Uh, For example, uh, my wife, when I was dating her, uh, got a haircut. And I wasn't a fan. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, yeah, right? Amen? Fellas, I'm never going to tell you to lie from the platform, okay? Um, But instead of, you know, really telling the truth, you could just acknowledge and be like, you got your hair cut. That's what I should have done. But I lied and I had to repent and she laughs at me now, right? But make sure you don't lie, right? Do, Do not lie, right? There is no buzz the tower. The pattern is full. That's number two. 
I now can be Maverick, right? Okay, okay, we're done with the Top Gun references, right? But acknowledgement, it lacks this, this fulfillment that encouragement gives us in building us up. It's more just factually stated, but here's where I really wanted to get to today. Because when we're talking about temptation, one of the four places we talked about was the temptation of approval. Here, I spend most of my time, if I'm seeking approval from others, I'm wondering, am I doing it the right way? Am I the right kind of person? And I'm looking to others to justify who I am, okay? These people, and I've stood here for a long time, perhaps you lack healthy boundaries in your life. You feel like take, people take advantage of you. Maybe that's, maybe that's you and you, you struggle here. Maybe you struggle with failure. It's like if, if I were to fail, if you guys knew exactly who I was, you wouldn't want to be around me and you go down this road that leads to mirage after mirage after mirage. You're seeking the approval of others. Um, show of hands, and I'll raise my hand with you, and if we're honest, any people pleasers in the room? People pleasers, oh yeah, I got a lot of people. Good, I'm not alone. I thought I was going to be the only one raising my hand, right? People pleasers. Really interesting that we, we oftentimes can sit in this place, seeking the approval of others to determine our own worth. Do you guys resonate with that perhaps? Maybe you know someone. There's a really interesting quote by Dr. Harriet Breaker. Some of you may have heard of her, but she was an American psychologist for, for 25 years. She worked a lot in the corporate environment. She worked with women in leadership and stress and all that kind of stuff. She said this, which is really interesting in regards to approval and the desire to please others. She says this, the disease to please, you guys say the disease to please is actually a form of addiction. Like a drug addict seeks drugs, so people pleasers seek the temptation of approval. What is she saying? She's saying that there's actually a chemical response as though dopamine comes into our system and convinces us that if we can seek the approval of someone else to justify who we are, we can find our identity, yet the threshold grows when it comes to addiction. And you need more, and you need more, and you need more. Just trying to get back over there, you stand here wondering, why is it that I keep coming back to approval? Approval leaves us with a deep longing to satisfy those around us in hopes to find satisfaction in ourselves. But approval, remember how we said it's a whisper? Approval whispers, prove it. Prove it. Prove that you're a good husband. Prove that you're a good wife. Prove that you're a good mom and a father. Prove that you're a good employee. Prove that you're a follower of Jesus. Prove it. Prove that you're successful. Prove that you're worthy of love. Prove it is what approval says. It whispers that. And today, again, we're going to jump back to Luke chapter 4. So if you still have your Bibles out, make sure you, you hop in there with me because we're going to be looking at the difference between what I'm going to call worldly approval and what we're going to call godly approval. And what is it that we examine in this scripture? I'm going to read back through this really quick, and it will be on the screen. But it says, and he took him to Jerusalem. Him, he, he being the enemy, took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. There's a lot of ideas of what this could mean, but it is obviously a high place at the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, almost smug-like, right? He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, to protect you. And 
On their hands they will bear you up. In other words, they'll catch you. They're going to catch you. You'll be all right. Lest your foot strike the stone. And then Jesus answered him, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So today is not honestly going to be a three-point sermon about this particular area. It's going to be more of a two-point sermon. We're going to look at what is it that the tempter says, what is it that Satan says in this that we need to learn from, and how is it that Jesus responds to this temptation? Because here again, we see Jesus taken to the temple at the high point, and Satan is actually in this section performing his final temptation of Jesus in this moment. And Jesus' last stand, when it comes to the temptation approval, would be about his identity. Who he is. That is what Satan is challenging when you are tempted by approval. It's an identity crisis. It is an identity attack. When we're saying prove that you're a good mom, prove that you're a good employee, prove that you're a good husband, this is all prove it. It's an identity-based thing. Prove it, Jesus. Prove your identity. Because identity and approval go hand in hand. Now, this is just conjecture on my part because the scriptures don't say it, but he's taken to a high place where one of two things exists. Number one, he can see everyone. That's the point of a high place is you can see a lot. Number two, perhaps a lot of people can see him. And here Satan again is tempting him, saying, if you are this, go ahead and jump. This is what your scriptures say. It's almost smug. Hey, God's going to take care of you. Jump. Why not? Prove it. Prove that you are who you say you are. Prove it to us all. Prove the power that you have. Imagine the fame. Imagine the clout. Imagine the approval of all the people. Let's kick off your ministry right. Let's do it. But what is at stake is the question. What is at stake here in this scripture? Number one, we're going to talk about this shaky identity. Shaky identity is the first place that we want to go to when we're encountering the temptation and mirage of approval. Why? Because identity and approval, again, are locked together. Coming back to if you are a good blank, you fill it in for yourself. What are you hearing when I say that? If you are blank, prove it. Prove it to us. The enemy will oftentimes call you by name and then tempt you to prove it, which is really strange, right? No, has anyone ever come up to you besides being at the airport where they just asked for your ID and just said, hey, Alex, prove to me you're Alex. Strange, right? John, prove to me you're John. Like, this is, this is a strange thing to be asked, but that's what the enemy is doing. That's what he is doing. And it's only conjecture at this point of what might have happened in these past moments afterwards, because we don't have a lot of context. What we do know is that Jesus is having to defend his own identity to Satan and to others. Why do we ever feel like we have to defend ourselves with action. I know who I am, but Satan will oftentimes call you by name and then ask you to prove it, which is strange. Because the point is this, by proving who you are to the world inevitably makes you who you aren't in God. I'm going to say that one more time. By proving who you are to the world, if you feel like you have to search for that approval in the world, it ultimately makes you who you are not in God. Why? Because worldly approval says do. Prove it. Prove it to me. Do more. Do more. Be restless. Keep going. You can sleep when you die. 
But God's approval says it's done. Worldly approval says do. God's approval says done. How do we know this? Well, one chapter before is one of the most beautiful stories in Scripture where we see Jesus approaching John the Baptist. And John is all his humility says, I cannot, I can't baptize you. Imagine being tasked with baptizing Jesus, right? Like that, that's, a, that's a big task, but yet Jesus says, no, this must be done. And Jesus would be baptized and pulled out of the water. And in this moment, the Holy Spirit manifest would descend as a dove. And a voice would come over that people would hear across the entire area. And he said, this is my son, identity, whom I love, identity, and I am well pleased, identity. That's how we know that it's done. To be able to rest upon that is all we need. To be able to rest upon what God has already declared about us. It's not cognition. This isn't just understanding mentally that, oh, I know these things, but not leaving them out. Recognition lives them out. It lives out understanding and recognizing in myself that, God, you live in me. You've given me life. I know who I am in Christ. That is recognition. But if we're honest, we get ensnared by this all the time. The need to, approve, to be approved of. We're ensnared by approval. And when we then have a shaky identity, what we then hear more and more of is dare you to prove it. Prove it to us. Prove it to all these people. Prove it to even yourself. It's only conjecture again from 11 to 12. But I would ask this question. If you were up there and you jumped, what would have happened to your ministry? Why didn't Jesus jump? What would have happened? I would think about it in this way. Like if I jump, I could show them all. I, I just got done, and you know, I'm kind of towards the end of this desert time, and I, I just got baptized, I'm ready to go. I mean, I could, I could, just, I could just jump and show them all. That's, that's vain ambition, right? It's, it's vain ambition. If I jump, I can start this thing early. Any people love to rush God's timing like me, right? I could start this thing early. I could get it off to a great start. No, that's, not, that's rushing God's timing. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, and he will lift you up in due time. He will be doing the lifting in due time. If I jump, I can make people be amazed by me. Wow, what a miracle. That's, that's incredible. Ultimately, I feel like that's insecurity. What would happen to your ministry if you had jumped? Why didn't Jesus jump? I wonder sometimes if we give way too much attention to what people may think of us, or what they think we should be, or what they think we should do. Does someone's opinion right now keep you up at night? Maybe it's a family member, mother-in-law, father-in-law. Maybe there's some tension there that's keeping you awake at night. Maybe it's your boss, and you're not quite feeling that encouragement, and so you seek to then just get approval from him, just hoping one day to hear that you're worthy because you're doing a good job, and maybe it's your boss that keeps you up at night. Maybe it's something someone said to you, and you're dwelling on it. It keeps you up at night. And you're just thinking, maybe, maybe I did something wrong. Maybe, maybe something's wrong with me, and yet you're still seeking the approval of someone else, and it's cutting deep into your identity. Sometimes we put way too much stock into what others think about us. In fact, it's said in Galatians 1.10, 
where Paul is speaking to this young church, which is kind of mixed up in some traditions, it says this, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Notice the dichotomy. Human beings, worldly approval, or godly approval? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Followers of Jesus in this room, work backwards. If you struggle in this place of approval, of needing people to give your identity, start with this. Are you a servant of Christ? Yes or no? Nothing in between. Are you a servant of Christ? If you are, work backwards. Work backwards from there. That means I cannot look to be approved by people over and over and give them the credence to determine my identity. No, 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 no. I am a servant of Christ in my very identity and everything else flows from that. Work backwards from Galatians 1.10. There's actually a, a song that uh, I love by this band called Jars of Clay. I know this is kind of funny. Uh, anyone heard of Jars of Clay? Maybe a bunch of Christians in the room. Awesome. <laughs> uh, it's not one of their, their smash hits. Um, it's, not, it's not one of those. Uh, but it is one of the songs that means a lot to me. And I remember hearing it for the first time. It really rocked me to my core. And it's a song called Two Hands. It talks about the dichotomy of human nature. And the second verse says this, I have a broken disposition broken disposition. I'm a liar who thirsts for the truth. I have a broken disposition. I'm a liar who thirsts for the truth. The approval of others, I've just not found it to be a truth in my life. No, the truth of what we need to understand is who we are in Christ, but we oftentimes would rather weigh out the lies in our lives of the approval of others over and over and over again. I wonder if you know what is the truth in your life about God. And what are the lies that people tell you that contradict what God has already said about you? I have a broken disposition. I'm a liar who thirsts for the truth. To understand that at the end of the day, you are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. And yet we still go, God, but, but, but they have said this. They, they, they told me this. They argued with me about this. Maybe there's some truth to it, God. Could it be that this new creation didn't stick? It didn't catch? Perhaps, God, you need to give me a, a newer creation. Let me take this into my own hands. That's normally where people like me who have been in this place before go to, that I'm going to take it into my own hands. But I'm here to tell you this and really make sure you catch this. You can spend time managing your reputation with others or you can spend time making a difference, but you cannot do both. You can spend time managing your reputation with others or you can spend time making a difference. Ask yourself that question. Because the only place that true kingdom-wide difference-making comes from is a place of receiving it with great humility and understanding God's mercy. And from there, we will pour out to make a difference. Anything else is folly. But if we're honest, as we're closing here, there are places where we think that this is actually about others and what they think, but really it's about you. Really, it's a deep-seated spiritual battle that's going on inside of you. Remember, we talked about its identity. In this text, I wonder, when he says, 
if you are the son of God, if he is tempting Jesus to prove it to others or to prove it to himself? Are you who you think you are is the next place we're going to. Are you who you think you are? Prove it to yourself by jumping. Aren't you curious? Did God really say that? Are you sure you can't eat of that tree? Are you seeing the garden here? It's the same exact tempter we've seen time and time again in the same place using the same exact tactics. But what is it that Jesus says? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Who is the Lord your God? One could argue technically that Jesus was talking about himself. When you see me, you see the Father, John 10, 30. I and the Father are one. One could assume that perhaps Jesus was saying, hey, I know who I am based upon what just happened to me. But truly, this scripture is actually pointing to a different place. And those of you who enjoy a little biblical history right now, this, this may, may be your spot here. But it points back to the book of Deuteronomy 6.16. It's around the area of the Shema, which was an identity-sealing moment that Moses was giving to the nation of Israel to tell them two things. Who God is and what he has done for them. And from that, they found their identity and reminding them of their identity. And Moses himself, at the end of this book, would die in hopes that this nation would continue in following God wholly through their identity in him. So I ask you, what has God done in your life that helps you to bring you back to a place where you know your identity is found, to stop seeking the approval of people, and to just know what God has already declared? What's interesting, though, is when Jesus says, do not test the Lord your God, he leaves out just a small little portion that if you look in Deuteronomy 6, it's a quote from Moses. Moses actually cites a place called Massah. Say Massah. Massah. He talks about this place. And at this place, the nation of Israel was groaning and they were tired and they were hungry and they were isolated. And they began to doubt God, the source of their identity. They began to doubt him. Has God really left us? Is he really here? They're groaning about all kinds of things. They're thirsty. At one point, they even say, is God even among us? Come back to the top of the temple. Let's imagine we're watching that, right? Come back to the top of the temple. And here we see Jesus interacting looking and saying, do not test the Lord your God. Well, what, what is that really saying? Yeah, don't test the Lord your God. Trust the Lord your God. Don't test the Lord your God. Trust the Lord your God. Because I want you to imagine a life that is free from the bondage of needing the approval of other people to solidify your identity. I want you to imagine letting go of those disagreements and the lack of perhaps forgiveness in your life or maybe you're wondering if someone else has forgiven you and it keeps you forgiving you and it's keeping you up at night imagine being able to rest again imagine the weight coming off your shoulders as that relationship or that person no longer has that control over your identity what would that be like 
does that feel like? Because Jesus knew who he was and the experience he had. So in closing, here's what I would suggest to you. Is that if you find yourself in a place where you're seeking the temptation of approval from others, here's my advice. That when you know whose you are, you can know who you are. When you know whose you are, you can know who you are very same spirit that conquered the grave can now live in us. What does that say about who you are? We must make seeking the approval of others a thing of the past. Colossians 3, 7 through 10 says this, if you want to turn in your scriptures. It says this, you used to walk in these ways. Remember we talked about being a new creation? You used to walk in old ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves, get rid of it, of all such things as these. And he lists off anger and rage and malice, slander, filthy language, whatever it is that takes you away from God. Just remove it. Rid yourself of it. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self. You've gotten rid of it. Taken off your old self and with its practices and have put on a new self that does not need to seek the approval of people which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of our creator. Do you know who you are? The image of God. I'd encourage you to do this. If you have a mirror at your house, normal thing, take a dry erase marker, and on it, I want you to write the words imago day. I-M-A-G-O-D-E-I. This means the image of God. One of the first scriptures ever seen, right? Genesis, the first ones you've probably ever seen. says, let us create man in our image. And I wonder if you know that today, that you are the image of the living creator. You have physical attributes like God. You have functional attributes like, like morality. You have relational aspects because you love and you know other people. But I wonder what you see when you look in this mirror. If you seek the approval of others, are there other people in front of this mirror, in front of your image, convincing you perhaps that you aren't what you are in the mirror? You hear the arguments, you hear the displeasure, you hear all this approval, and yet you're looking in the mirror desperately trying to see what it is that God sees in you. Let me tell you what he sees. Because you're the image of God, and when you accept Christ, you are a masterpiece. You are a new creation in Christ. Scripture would even say that you are more than a conqueror. When you look in the mirror, the Imago Dei, it should say that because it doesn't rely upon the approval of others. No, no, no. It doesn't rely upon this over here at all. It relies upon the fact that you were created in the image of God. Revelation 2.17 says that you have a new name written down in glory. A new name. The good news, the gospel message behind all of this is that when you know whose you are, you can know know whose you are, you can know who you are. We have to put away the desire to have this approval here. 
put away this desire, rid yourself of it, and come back to the Imago Dei, the image of God, that when you look in the mirror, you know your identity, no matter what others may say. We're about to uh, sing a song called Make Room, and there's a part in it that says your way is better, and sometimes we can just sing these songs, and it's a good time, and it's wonderful to hear everyone singing, but I want you to really allow this lyric to sit on you that if you truly believe that his way is better, you've got to understand that the temptation of approval must be rid, must be gone, and we have to be able to sit in God's approval. God's approval is better. Your way is better. Let's pray. Jesus, we again come back to you knowing that you are good, merciful, and mighty. Lord, we thank you for the example that you set on the top of the temple here, showing us exactly what it's like when we're tempted by Satan in the same exact ways, and you showed us again that you did not sin. And Satan tried to take your identity, but Lord, you stood up. And you reminded us of these Old Testament scriptures where the Lord was with us, and we went through it, and we went through it, and there were people coming against the nation of Israel, and yet you remained faithful. And upon that, we can lay our lives. Why? Because your way is better, God. Your approval is better. Your words about us, your declarations about us are better than the words others say. So we trust you today, God, and return back to you. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray.